you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 48 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Totten Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And obviously last week you will recall we had a fascinating discussion on the Kenny Report, uh, which was under the chairmanship of the former Supreme Court Judge John Kenny, with Tim Ryan, who's written a wonderful book about the report and its relevance today to housing issues mm. and the difficulties we face in housing and land, you know, getting land and relevant land that we can build on, etc. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty no, I, think, wasn't it? I think it's a, it's a really, it's a good read. And, uh, you know, for anybody who wasn't aware of the Kenny Report, it's, it's an easy read. Will you just give us the title of the book yeah, again? We called, should give it a mention. It's Housing, A Missed Opportunity, The Tangled Story of the Kenny Report, published by Grand Canal Media and written by Tim Ryan. No, it was really brilliant. It was really, really, really fascinating interview, I have to say. Well, today we're staying in the realm of politics, but always as a legal theme added in, Mark, of course. When we had Neve Howlin in here a couple of weeks ago to discuss her book on the history of barristers in Ireland in the 20th century, we mentioned that one of her chapter headings concerned barristers and public life and public service. And today's guest knows all about that. He's Dublin MEP, Barry Andrews. He has straddled both worlds. He was a practicing barrister for a number of years and then went into public life, serving in the Doyle Mm. and now is currently MEP for Dublin. So really looking forward to talking to him. Yeah, yeah. It's always interesting to hear somebody who's, shall we say, been on both sides of the fence, both sort of applying the law as a a barrister or solicitor and then moving into the legislative side. And I think he having been both a a junior minister in Dublin and then now being in, in the European Parliament, I think it's interesting to hear that No, absolutely. Really looking forward to that interview. But first to some cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. We're going to start with a very sad case. Uh, This concerns an infant who died at five days old following an emergency caesarean section. An inquest jury found that the death had been by natural causes, although they found that the hospital could review their procedures with regard to the use of Oxycontin. A controversial drug, I think, but maybe I shouldn't say that because I'm not a medical expert. The parents, obviously, the heartbroken parents challenged the natural causes verdict by judicial review. um, But the court said, no, the jury found correctly. Yeah, as you said, I mean, this is obviously an extremely sad case um, arising from the death of a a five-year-old infant. The issue here was that there was jury in the inquest and they reached the verdict of natural causes. But one of the things that a jury can do, as well as reaching a verdict, is to make recommendations in the public interest. And so what they said in this case, and obviously it was an issue raised by the parents' own legal team, was the use of OxyContin in the medical procedures. And basically the jury said that the hospital should review its procedures. But the ultimate finding was natural causes, which which the parents were not happy with. And it's Um, it's important to say that a coroner is entitled to make... A recommendation, or there is a specific phrase on it. Well, well, recommendations in the public yeah, interest. Yeah, in the public but, interest. But, but yeah. there's jury. It would be the jury making the recommendations rather than the coroner. But the issue here was that they sought to challenge both the verdict and the coroner's charge to the jury. And one of the things they said was that um, they didn't have the coroner's notes 
And this arose on appeal. And of course, Mr. Justice Meenan in the Court of Appeal said, well, well, you, you didn't look for the notes by way of discovery in the High Court. So he, he, he didn't hold with them on that. Would they have got the notes? I mean, acting in a quasi-judicial capacity, a coroner, um, would he be obliged to, to hand over his notes? I would have thought I, well, no. Well, well what, what the judge said here was that, that where, where they were represented and were able to take their own notes of the hearing, there was no particular reason to look for the coroner's notes, I think. Okay, okay. So that issue didn't arise. Okay, and yeah. I should say yeah. that and this is the case of Rhys Spencer Cummins versus the coroner for Cork City and it's a decision of Mr Justice Charles Meenan as you just said. Okay, case number two next to a case where a receiver had been appointed over property he sought vacant possession but the borrowers were making life difficult for him so he sought various interlocutory orders uh, from the court restraining the borrowers from interfering with the receivership and allowing him basically to get on yeah. with his business. Yeah, this is a not uncommon problem when a receiver is appointed over land that the borrowers feel that they that the land shouldn't have been repossessed or the receiver shouldn't have been appointed and sometimes as happened in this case try to uh, effectively remain in possession put their own tenants in place and there was a suggestion here that somebody had actually been involved in making certain um, unlawful threats towards people. So the, the receiver basically sought an interlocutory order to grant him possession of the property and to restrain them from interfering. And um, the borrowers tried to suggest that they had entered into a restructuring agreement, again, with the original lender, not the lender who had appointed the receiver. Um, but they failed to establish that there had been a restructuring agreement. The most they could show was that they had had certain meetings with the representatives of the, of the lender. And they, um, they also sort of said, well, look, we have an equity of, of redemption in the property. We should be allowed to effectively you know, pay off our mortgage. But they couldn't establish that they had the funds to do that. And they also tried to suggest that there were unfair terms in the original contract. And again, they weren't able to point to any unfair okay, terms. So the judge wasn't having any of that. Wasn't having any yeah, of it. So I should say that this is the case of Fennell versus Riley. It's a high court decision from Ms. Justice Nula Butler. That's correct. Okay, so finally to a case where the HSE appealed from an order of the High Court declaring that they had an ongoing duty to provide mental health treatment to a former prisoner, obviously somebody who had obviously left prison, even though he had been unsuccessful in relation to a number of other orders sought. But he claimed that he was still entitled to be treated for his mental health. So this is the case of W versus the HSC. It's a court of, of appeal decision of, is it Ms. Justice Tara Burns or Mr. This, Justice Paul Burns? I think this is Burns, Ms. Justice Jay, Tara Burns. Indeed, Tara yeah. Burns. Okay, very good. Um, Tell us about this one, Mark. So, yeah, well, as you said, it's, it's a case involving a prisoner who had quite serious mental health difficulties, a history of violence, and he had been seeking certain orders in relation to the care that he was entitled to. Most of the orders were dismissed by the High Court, but what they did say was the health service executive had ongoing duties to treat his mental health under existing legislation. And extraordinarily, the health service executive uh, sought to appeal this finding. And um, I think if, if I just quote from what the judge said, that such a declaration is appealed against might be considered surprising as a, reason, as a reasonable interpretation of that declaration could be considered as confirming the duty on the respondent to provide the first named appellant with appropriate mental health treatment relevant to his medical needs, having regard to Section 7 of the Health Act 2004. So what they effectively said in the Court of Appeal was there is a statutory duty to look after his mental health. So the declaration was simply confirming the statutory duty. There's no reason why the HSC should have been appealing that order. OK, very good. Well, thanks for that, Mark. And thank you for explaining those cases so well. Back shortly with MEP Barry Andrews. Silence in the Fifth Court.
So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Barry Andrews, MEP, who probably needs no introduction to most of our listeners. Uh, Barry comes from the well-known Andrews dynasty. His grandfather, Todd Andrews, wrote two very interesting books, Dublin Made Me and A Man of No Property, which I read many years ago and really enjoyed. His father, David Andrews, uh, was both a barrister and uh, TD and Minister for Foreign Affairs during the Good Friday Agreement negotiations. Barry's older brother, also David, took the more conventional route for the child of a TD and became a stand-up comedian. But Barry, being a bit edgier, decided to take the more precarious route and became a barrister and politician himself. So, well, we'll talk to you about your career, Barry, but thank you very much for joining us at the fifth, on the Fifth Court. Great pleasure, Mark and Peter. Lovely to be here. I uh, listened with great interest to how this podcast has been going so well. It's such, such a well, success. So congratulations. Well, thank you for that, Barry. So, um, yeah, your, your background, obviously, is your, your father was a barrister and a TD and you followed in his footsteps. Mm. Most of our listeners obviously have a legal interest. How did you find following somebody who, who was a barrister? Did he give you good advice? Was it a, a help or a hindrance? To- it, it was brilliant because, uh, like, when I, I, I mean... I took a seat in the doll, so he was gone and I came in. But we were both in the law library mm. uh, for a period of time. So it was really cool. We used to go for uh, coffee together. And, uh, Did he ever um, meet uh, No, no, he never <laughs> let me. But uh, it was brilliant to just spend a bit of time with him. And, uh, you know, he's great personal skills to see the way he interacted with people. Uh, everybody's very fond of him. Um, the staff, the other barristers, solicitors, clients, mm. everybody. So he did a nice uh, manner about him. Yeah. Gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was lovely to see him in his sort of professional context. Mm. Yeah, you know, no, there was never advice. You know, it was just, uh, we were, it was good to spend that time with him. And uh, and how is he now? Is he still in good health? Or? Yeah, I was with him uh, last evening. We, we fed him uh, right. and my mother and uh, he's 88. He's going to be 89 sure. now in March and you know, he's a bit slower on the pins, but he's, uh, he, he's, 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 unfortunately, there's no change in his personality. <laughs> sure. so. Now, your, da- your dad is wonderful, and I had the experience of working with him in the law library, and he's mm. wonderful to work with. Yeah. When I think of him as a politician, obviously, mm. he was a senior counsel and an eminent senior counsel, but he was foreign minister. He was minister for foreign affairs for the Good Friday Agreement. That's right. He, there are four signatories of the Good Friday Agreement. People sort of forget that. There's Bertie, is my father, and Mo Molum and Tony Blair. And so <laughs> that's a real claim to fame, sure. you know, for him and a source of huge pride. And then, so it, it's it's an incredible thing. I remember the period of 1998 uh, very, very, very well. And uh, the stress and the the, the tantrums that were show, thrown and uh, all of the people walking away, people walking back. And uh, that, that had ever happened in the end is a, a miracle, really. Yeah, a miracle. Absolutely. So um, you yourself, as we said, became a TD in 2002. You took your father's seat. Uh, You'd been at the bar for five years by that stage. Mm -hmm. And during your career in the Dáil, you became what was described as a super junior minister. Mm -hmm. How did you find your experience as a barrister kind of informed your your career then as a legislator? Do you think think it makes a difference to have seen the law sort of applied in practice? Yeah, well, in fact, the the reason I studied law was uh, I wanted to go into politics. And so in the early 90s, uh, there were were three main issues this particular year that I applied to the King's Inns to become a barrister. One was the X case, obviously heavily Mm -hmm. legal issues. Another was cabinet confidentiality that came out of the Beef Tribunal. And the other was the Maastricht Treaty itself. Uh, which was a source of huge uh, debate. And each of them were just so heavily this weighted. This is 92, with, 93. 90, yeah. 92, 93. So I became a, a student in the King's Inns as, a, as a, a mature student in 1993. I did the diploma at night. And so 
it was really because I wanted to be a politician that could add some value. So I felt if you had a legal training, it would give you a much greater advantage. So when I became a backbencher uh, in the in the Dáil, it definitely was a huge advantage to, to be able to read legislation, to understand its relationship with EU law, its relationship with the Constitution, to understand to some extent, and also to understand your powers as a backbencher, uh, which were limited. But uh, to, I, I think I was one of the first government backbenchers to introduce uh, legislation. So I, I proposed a private members bill, a private or, members or, bill or, which was called the Spent Convictions Bill. It eventually sure. became law after my time, after I'd lost my seat. But, you know, being able to take that initiative and I got help from some of my colleagues in the bar, particularly Michael Chute, who uh, some of your listeners will know, who helped me to draft the legislation. And, you know, it was the right of initiative that perhaps a non-lawyer mightn't be aware of. And the spent convictions legislation, that meant effectively that uh, after a certain period of time, you didn't have to disclose an old conviction that effectively your presumption of innocence returned. Yeah, correct. And it, what, it, what it, the, it was the Rehabilitation of Offenders Law in the UK and it is described as a statutory lie. So you can say based on this statute that you don't have that conviction and it doesn't extend things like applying for visas, obviously, but it does apply for seeking employment for insurance purposes, you can say, no, I don't have a conviction for certain categories of offence after a certain period of time. Did you find your colleagues who weren't lawyers uh, turned to you for advice? I mean, do you think it was, it's a disadvantage to not have the training, if you know what I mean? I, I, yes, from time to time, uh, they, they, they would uh, ask me to, uh, you know, some help ab ab about various things. And uh, But you know what, most, most of the backbenchers particularly are kind of sole traders, and we didn't tend to work together. And there were lots of sources of advice, parliamentary legal counsel. Uh, there were advisors to various committees, particularly the heavy committees on, for example, the Committee on the Constitution. I was on that. There was a lot of lawyers involved. So uh, it didn't happen that often. But from time to time, the non-lawyers, um, but there were a lot of lawyers <laughs> in, in the Dáil at that time. Uh, but some of the non-lawyers would look for advice and help. Can, I, can I ask you about that, Barry? I mean, you know, that issue and, and drafting that piece of legislation, I mean, it's very much in a kind of a human rights vein. And you, you talked about getting into, you know, joining the legal profession when all of those cases, the X case and various different cases were kind of a background noise at the time when you were entering the profession. You then go in and become a politician and you're a backbench TD. Is it disappointing? Do you come in brimming with kind of desire to change and to bring in legislative change? And then, and you were very successful in that piece of legislation. But as you said, you know, sometimes it was a bit frustrating being on the backbenches. You can't really do a lot. You're boxed in a small bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, the, the classic lobby fodder, you know, and uh, a number of us got together to try to say, set up a sort of backbench committee, like the 1922 committee in the Tory party and over in the UK. And uh, Bertie was the leader at that time of Fianna Fáil. And uh, he, he dealt with the he rebellion. Did, he didn't see that as any great advantage to him. <laughs> no, he didn't. So he invited us to the party rooms on the fifth floor um, every Thursday throughout July at half seven in the evening. So as you can imagine, the rebellion petered out uh, as a result. But yeah, I mean, there was all this, that frustration. I remember writing an article for, that was published in the Irish Times and I kind of listed in order the seven uh, locuses of power in Ireland, you know, including the courts, the European Union, 
the unions because at that time partnership was very much social partnership. And, you know, you go down the road, you find the backbenchers at the very end. So, you know, and, and what, he, what Bertie did, I mean, he was really very good with the backbenchers. He kind of expanded the ministries, the junior ministries. There are lots and lots of, I think there might have been 35 ministers at one point. And it was applied as a sort of political anesthetic, <laughs> for the, a sort of political chloroform for the uh, rebellious backbenchers to give them something to do. But yeah, it was frustrating. I mean, there's no, no doubt about it. And yet for a, for a government with a small majority, each individual backbench TD needs to be kept happy. I mean, you say there isn't much power, but I mean, you, you always have the power to say, right, I'm going to walk. Yes, we do, you know, but that's really a nuclear option. And I think at that time, 02, 07, which I'm, the period I'm talking about, the economy was in good shape. Um, it was a very, people at that time were uh, nostalgic about the heady days of the 80s when the doll was full of heaves and incredible stuff happening and terrible scandals. And in the 0207 period, it was very, very boring, really. And, you know, it, it, so there was no, none of that excitement. But then, of course, you're careful what you wish for because, you know, as soon as 2008 you came around. You were in 2007, occurred, weren't you? Yeah, I got yeah, yeah. elected in 07. And then in 2008, I became a minister when Bertie Hearn stepped down. Brian Cowan became Taoiseach yes. and he appointed me. And Brian Cowan, I mean, he's a man who gets, you know, a, a harsh press, I think. I mean, he found himself in, in circumstances that were very difficult. He had been Minister for Finance for a long time. He was Taoiseach, so the book does stop with him. But, you know, retrospectively looking back, he had a hard time, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we, we would say that in that period, 08, 11, I was in the cabinet as a junior, as a super junior, as you say, at the high chair of the cabinet. So we had Paul Gallagher, the uh, Attorney General, Brian Lennon, who's the Minister for Finance, and Brian Cowan. And between the three of them and their three departments, they had to come up with NAMA, they had to come up with FEMPI, they had to come up with all of this architecture of recovery, including the plan that was eventually, sadly, tragically agreed with the uh, the Troika. And so... The next government came in and implemented essentially what had been designed, frankly, in the period 08-11. Now, that's my version, right? Yes. Um, and I think Brian Cowan subsequently, when he spoke at various events uh, in Georgetown University, he gave a very good speech around 2018. And he and also to the Finance Committee that, that tried to review what had happened, he gave his version as he saw it, you know. And I look, I think, I think people are very fond of him. I had him over in Brussels recently. He was representing a business interest and we went out for dinner with him. And it's just right. fantastic to see him out and about. He's got great friends and family and uh, he's good. in and he's, good he's, shape. He's back to himself because he went through a tough time medically. He went through a tough time, yeah. participating in the Council of State there last yeah, week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so he's in good, you know, he's still physically not himself whatsoever, but uh, he's, he's, in, he's in good shape and uh, he's enjoying life to the best extent possible. Can I just come in here? you got to tell us about the Troika. And I mean, at the time, you yeah. remember there was certain of your colleagues were on television and they were shaking mm. their heads, no such thing, no Troika, no Troika. And then they landed. What was that like being part of that cabinet? Was, Obviously, this cabinet horrendous. confidentiality, we don't expect you to give away the family secrets. <laughs> no, but no. can you tell us something about that? Well, yeah, because, um, you know, you mentioned my grandfather was in the independence, you know, founding father. And by the way, I should also mention my grandmother spent a year in jail during the Civil War. And her history has been revived a little bit now by my sister. For her, you know, it's a really worthy thing. But so that was in my head as this was happening. So sovereignty was draining out the door of the cabinet. 
And I remember looking out the window onto the government buildings where the fountain is. And it was snowing very heavily at this time when we were making this uh, this decision. And we obviously had to go to the doll. And I did look out the window and, you know, it was this scene of just absolutely beautiful out in government buildings. And But I was very conscious that what my grandfather and grandmother had started, we had degraded and it was a very profoundly difficult uh, thing to be a part of, frankly. But, you know, all we could do was get on with the job that was in front of us. And um, we all knew that Brian Lennon was very sick at this time and he sort of uh, embodied what we were doing. He was going to get on with it. He was facing a terrible trauma and difficulty himself. And, you know, that's all we could do. So, yeah, it was difficult. So after you you lost your seat in the great Fianna Fáil wipeout, should we say, in uh, 2011, I think it was, yep. wasn't it? You spent a bit of time as CEO of Goal and then you were with Institute of International and European Affairs for a while. Mm. And then you were elected MEP for Dublin in 2019. Isn't that mm-hmm. right? That's right. By this stage, you've had experience of being a practicing barrister. You've had experience of legislating and being a minister, presumably guiding legislation in Ireland What's the comparison between working the Oireachtas and working the European Parliament? Is there any comparison? Well, there are some comparisons, but it's very, very different. Um, it's very much based on the German model, um, whereas in the Dáil, there's a leader of the opposition. There's no leader of the opposition in the European Parliament. Whereas in the Dáil, they meet every week. The European Parliament meets once a month for three days. The committees have all the power in the European Parliament. Uh, the European Parliament is a hemicycle, whereas we have this fantastic kind of way of having political debate in our Parliament, which is much more like the UK model. So the Irish model of legislating is very different. The Irish model it's of politics. It's more adversarial. Exactly is the word I was looking for. But, uh, you know, I don't make the point that 70% of our law here in Ireland comes from the European Union, but 90% of the drama comes from the Dáil. Yeah. So, uh, and people love drama, of course, but the European Parliament is a little bit uh, sterile by comparison. You don't have the soap opera. You don't have no, people not, sitting not, there going, who's going to take over from who next week? Exactly. And, there's none of that going on. I mean, when Farage and his ilk were in there, actually, it was probably more exciting. But after Brexit happened, they all left. Um, the European Parliament became a fairly sterile place. And a lot of the speeches are very boring. They're very repetitive. There isn't as much debate as you would, you know, being able to ha- have the capacity for adversarial debate is very much rewarded in British politics and to some extent in Irish politics, but not so much in European Parliament where specialisation is rewarded, expertise is rewarded in terms of uh, getting on and advancing. And what about your political colleagues? I mean, the MEPs who sit beside you and serve with you on those committees. I mean, is there an international commonality between politicians? I mean, is all politics local? Do they think the same way as we do? No. Are they they trying to get people into the guards? I mean, is that that (laughs) the sort of... They don't just philosophy, or is it completely different? It's completely different because we have uh, PRS TV, whereas they have list systems. So I met a Romanian guy the other day. He's not an MEP, but he said to me, uh, "I'm second on my list, so I'll see you in June." So like he knows he's he's going to get back. Yeah, he's already going to get elected. And you know, once you get high on your list and your party's fifteen percent you're 100% going to be elected in June. So that's the only uh, threshold you have to get past. Whereas we eat what we kill in Ireland, you know, uh, you have to win your convention, uh, which I did in 2019, and then you have to win your seat. And that's all about, you know, getting the maximum number of first preferences, getting the maximum amount of transfers, and really grinding at an incredibly granular level. And I think personally that the Irish system uh, has led to uh, the sense that people are close to the European Parliament. 
whereas there's a huge distance with the average voter in Germany or France with their uh, MEP. You think they're less connected with the European Parliament? Because I don't oh, think most Irish people would feel particularly close to the European Parliament. Yeah, well, you know, much closer than their German or French equivalents. So, um, and, and this is particularly so with the Dáil compared to the uh, the French Assembly or the, uh, the German Parliament. So I, I think that PRS TV system is like the terroir, if you like. And out of that is the flavour of politics. So I think that in Ireland, we have a much better system. The proximity to the voter uh, means that we have a much more stable system of government. The level of industrial action in Ireland after austerity, after the crash in 2018, was tiny because people said, right, I know we can get rid of this guy, these guys and we can change the entire complexion of the government, which is what they did. Whereas in, in other countries, there's a sort of frustration, which leads to a lot of demonstrations, which leads to protests and strikes and civil unrest that we frankly haven't had in Ireland for an awful long time. Can yeah. I just bring you back to the, your, your points that the, that the legislation is really made in committee in Europe? So, I mean, when you are sitting in committee, again, with the other MEPs, presumably the list for systems means that they can appoint people who have expertise in particular areas. And... You know, I don't want to name names, but the, the the nature of politics in Ireland is you'll get a certain number of people whose whose real purpose is to concern themselves specifically with local issues and really are elected on those rather than national issues. And once you get people like that elected at European level, I imagine their input in committee is relatively limited or is that an unfair characterization? Uh, there's there's a space for every type of... You do have to have some expertise in the European Parliament or, or otherwise you are irrelevant. So you're right about the other countries. So, so take, for example, Macron's party, Renaissance. So they, they have about 23 MEPs and each one is an expert in their field. A, a pre-existing expert. Yeah, a pre-existing expert. Right. Like this, there's, a, um, you know, an expert who's a, who's a lecturer or, or a professor of this or a guy who was the head of a company and this lady was a medical doctor. And all of them have this background of expertise in geopolitics and whatever it is. And they're picked one by one and they get put on the system and in they go. And they never really have to worry about a, a single plate of chicken and but, chips. But are they political <laughs> enough? Well, this is Barry, the point. See, can, see. They, can they do politics? Because it's all about trade. It's all about understanding the other side. What can we get away with? Can we negotiate? It's all very well being an expert. Yeah. But you also have to I think you know, right, bring yeah. together, you know, basically get consensus. And that is the art of politics. Obviously, you have to have knowledge, but you yeah. also have to have the skill of engaging with other people and getting a result. Yeah, well, see, a great, good story just to illustrate that is, you know, Phil Hogan was the uh, agriculture minister before he became trade commissioner and uh, the agriculture commissioner. So uh, they were finalising the EU-Japan deal, the free trade agreement, and it was really stuck. Uh, Phil got on a plane and he went to Tokyo for two or three nights and he basically glad-handed the Japanese, respected all of their customs. and Did the Phil Hogan. He did the classic Phil Hogan. And then when the head of the French Farmers Union, uh, his father passed away and Phil showed up at the funeral. <laughs> they were just stunned to see the, the European Commissioner for Agriculture. So there was a little bit of Kilkenny all over Europe. So yeah, that, that kind of political touch is, uh, is valuable, I think. And then sometimes when you bring in people who have no, uh, never run for a council seat, never run for a... Uh, never had to canvas door to door. Um, never had to really respond to the, you know, the granular concerns of ordinary people. Yeah, you do. You do lose something. Barry, you said a great phrase there. You said, you know, Europe is responsible for seventy percent of the legislation, mm. 
and the doll is responsible for 90% of the drama. It's a great mm. phrase, mm. okay? Mm. How do you change that? How do you make the Irish public aware of the fact that the way they live their lives, a lot of the decision-making is being made in Europe and it's very progressive generally. You know, mm. you can say, oh, you know, it's an unelected body over there, yeah. but they are elected. But how do you change that perception where people tune into the fact that Europe is so significant? Well, you have to make it relevant. Um, so I'm dealing with the forced labour instrument at the moment. We voted on it two days ago or, or last week in Strasbourg. And the forced labour instrument is a product ban placing products that are tainted with forced labour on the single market. So how do I make that relevant? Well, two weeks ago, the New Yorker published an article about the Chinese distance fishing fleet that has forced labour in it and the fleet and the processing plants on the east coast of China. And this seafood is making its way into European supply chains. And Tesco, Lidl, Aldi and Musgraves are all mentioned in the report. So now I have a kind of a hook and I can explain to people that fish finger you have may well have modern slavery uh, is as part of that supply chain. And then you can talk about the forced labour instrument. And equally with the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive that I'm also working on, it's a mouthful and even you guys are looking at me. <laughs> but what that forces large companies to do is to check their supply chain for both human rights and environmental damage. So again, I've been working on the fast fashion area, which people understand. Sure. They know they can buy T-shirts for two euro. Uh, on Sheehan. And now you can say, well, you know why that is? Because these guys don't pay their staff. You had the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. Yes. Uh, there's terrible abuses of workers. And so you can bring the, the matter into their lives, into their daily lives and say, well, by the way, we're fixing this. And we have a law called the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. And hopefully that will be transposed into Irish law. Do you think it was one of the French technocrats that came up with the name of that legislation? <laughs> well, there's this long story behind it. It was meant to be two pieces of legislation. It was meant to be corporate sustainable, uh, sustainable governance, and then it was meant to be a due diligence directive, two separate ones, but they brought them together. And hence, it's so CS3D is where we wow. landed. Okay. I, I, was, I was listening to a colleague of yours there recently, and he was talking about, you know, that in one way, politics has crept in a little bit more into the European Parliament and into the European Union generally. They were saying where once everything was motivated by science and kind of rational yeah, yeah. reason and thinking, whereas now there's a lot of kind of state interference which is stopping certain developments. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the progressive things that happened that we have benefited from greatly in Ireland, I believe, uh, mightn't have happened if there was more political interference. Yeah, so there's two things that have happened. One is that the European Parliament has got more power, but also there's been a shift in power from the Commission to the Council. So there is only a fraction of the infringement proceedings uh, that would have happened under Barroso's uh, commission in the noughties are now happening. So instead of protecting the constitution of the European Union, they're now protecting the member states and membership itself. And so they're uh, steering well clear of crises with the member states. And that is degrading, if you like, the quality of the legislation and the speed of the legislation getting through uh, the system. And the European Parliament now has much more of a role since Lisbon. So it, it is much more political. And so can I just but frankly, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the reasons it, we were talking mm, about earlier on. You're effectively saying that since the European Parliament has more power, the quality of the legislation is going down. No, the so, speed. Or, of, I, should, oh, sorry, I meant to say sorry. the speed of the legislation right. is 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 um, is slowing down. I mean, the, you know, from time to time, the system can produce fast legislation. I mean, the digital COVID certificate probably the best example mm. of something a regulation that went through in super quick time as soon as we got vaccinations, but. 
generally things are a little bit slower, a little bit more bogged down. I mean, the classic example is the Migration and Asylum Pact, which has been bogged down for since 2010. I think it was first proposed by the Commission, uh, was re-proposed again in 2018, uh, and then again in 2020. And we are very close, actually, here with the Migration and Asylum Pact, but it is 13 years later. And I mean, just going back to the Lisbon Treaty, I mean, effectively, the, the, the system now is co-decision, isn't mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Whereas before the Lisbon Treaty, the Parliament would debate these things and could right. effectively be ignored by yeah. the Commission and the Council who would then just make the decision. Mm-hmm. Whereas now the Parliament has to approve legislation, isn't that Correct. right? Correct. Uh, it, it, uh, yeah, so the first stage is the Parliament reading, then the Council gets to do its general approach and then you get into trilogues together. Uh, but the right of initiative is still with the Commission and that's mm-hmm. a real bone of contention because like I mentioned earlier, when I was a backbencher in the Dáil, in that mm-hmm. Parliament, I was able as a member of the Parliament to initiate a piece of legislation. That's not something that is available to MEPs to initiate a piece of legislation that only comes from the and Commission. can okay. legislation be kind of brought in by the back door by amending sort of the legislation that comes before you from the Commission? Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Commission will propose, uh, make a proposal. We will apply our amendments. The Council will announce their general approach. It goes, it can go back and forth a little bit, but then you get into the trilogues, which is the final part of it. We are currently in trilogues on CS3D, by the way. Uh, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. And um, so we will try to uh, make sure that the final directive has as much of the uh, imprint of the parliament on it uh, as is possible. But the the member states are very much pushing back. One particular issue is the size of companies that it applies to. So in Germany, the German supply chain law applies to companies of 5,000 employees or more, whereas our proposal is for 500 employees or more. So that's going to be a serious... uh, Can can I get into more sort of political philosophy type questions? Barry, you're there now four and a half years and you're up for election in, I think it's June, it's not May anymore. It used to be always May, but it's June. June, We wish you well. Obviously, we have to wish everybody well in that Uh election, but we do wish you well in relation to that. Okay, so I was going to say you have a front row seat in the European Mm -hmm. Union. You're actually on the stage. You're Mm -hmm. a player there. Does it work? You've been there now four and a half years. When you kind of... When you fly home from Brussels after a long time and you've put in the hours, etc., are you saying this this is working? This is good? Yeah, it's all I mean, good? It, yeah, it's the question is, you know, we, we're always faced with existential crises. You know, will the EU survive? It's a bit of a Daily Mail thing, you know. And we've, I think the, the EU in, in my time, uh, and I'll just let me talk about 2020 onwards, because I didn't actually come in until 2020, Peter, if you remember, yes. I was one of these uh, deep freeze MEPs. Slightly delayed. <laughs> Slightly delayed. But anyway, Um, The pandemic started 20 minutes after I took my seat. And I think the European Union did exceptionally well around the pandemic, not just on the procurement and distribution of vaccines, not just on the digital COVID certificate, but but the whole next generation EU recovery and resilience facility, the idea of raising mutual debt for the first time ever. It was inconceivable that something like that would happen at EU level. But that all happened as as a response to the pandemic. And we were much better where the sum was much greater than the parts. And then we've had Ukraine. And whatever your views are on the Russian aggression in Ukraine, the, the European Union's response has been incredibly united. You know, there's a lot of unity around sanctions. There have been some issues there. Uh, but, you know, providing a road a, a roadmap for Ukrainian membership of the European Union, providing support, humanitarian support for Ukraine, all of that has been incredible. And if you go back to Brexit, the European Union's response has been incredible. It managed migration okay. They managed to 
take some of that off the table. Um, but I think the European Union has done exceptionally well during the last four years. Okay, I would I would make an exception, by the way, for the the last two weeks. Yes, which has so been. I have to ask you about that. Okay, very, very as you say, they're they're yeah. all on message in relation to Ukraine, and there's been a you know a, a consistent approach mm-hmm. in relation to that. We know there's been some discontent expressed on this island in relation to the attitude of the European Union in relation to the Israeli-Palestine issue that's all pervasive at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think of that? I mean, are we out of sync? You know, do you have any views on that? You know, in my group, there's 100 MEPs and we've got 22 countries represented in our, we don't have any Portuguese MEPs, for for example. But the German MEPs were very, very strong in saying, you know, it, this is an historical issue for us. Yes. And, and they we were, can understand that, and, of course. And that's perfectly understandable. And there are other countries that have the same concern. Uh, that they carry this historical memory that it, it informs the way they approach these political issues. And But there were Spanish that spoke up the same as I did. There were uh, French MEPs in my group that spoke up the same as I did. So there was a very significant number of people. Ireland was not out of step on this, uh, in my opinion, not in the European Parliament. So the, the one issue we were pulling uh, at, we, we finally came up with a resolution last week in Strasbourg. And the debate around the resolution went back and forth. It started out, uh, the resolution said, you know, the European Parliament supports Israel. That changed to the European Parliament supports the people of Israel. And then it changed back to the European Parliament supports the government and the people of Israel. And, you know, that, that, that was where the debate was going on. But it started out very much, the flag of Israel went up on the Berlin Mont. Ursula von der Leyen, Robert, Robert Mazzola went over to uh, and never questioned Israel's tactics, shall we say, in, in, in asserting its right of self-defense and never insisted on the humanitarian law. All of that was really, really bad. I think that's all been pulled back. And it wasn't just Ireland that did it. Let's be no. very clear. But Ireland There's a is, lot of countries that are very a, there was unhappy a wonderful, with it. There was a wonderful interview with Naomi O'Leary, who's the, the Irish Times yeah. uh, Brussels correspondent, who I'm sure you know well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talked about how her colleagues out there were all saying, wow, Ireland seems to be you know, very strong on this and seems to be at odds with generally the philosophy in Europe. Did you find that? Again, I just, I, it wasn't my experience. We, we, we had uh, lots of MEPs that took that position. And the, when Varhelly, the commissioner for DG Near, he um, said that we were going to suspend all aid to, pa- to Palestine, to Gaza, um, it wasn't just Ireland that raised an objection to it. It was Denmark, Luxembourg, uh, one other. There was four countries that raised an objection to it. So we, we weren't by ourselves, but there is no doubt that Ireland's voice in this area was very, very clear. And it was really astonishing to see how united, actually, people yes. were in, in, in Ireland around this issue. Not 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 criticising Israel, not you know, yes, absolutely accepting absolutely. that this was a terrible atrocity, and they were that they had a right to self-defence, yes. but at the same time, the, you know, you can't cherry pick international law, international humanitarian law insists that you, you know, all the, we've all heard the arguments at this stage. So I think we were very clear, very reasonable and practical in all those issues. Yeah. As a more sort of general question, I mean, you've been there for nearly five years, you're up for re-election. Um, is there any change that you think would... M- could be made to the treaties or to the structure that would make the work of the parliament more effective? Well, I think the right of initiative for the European Parliament would be very helpful. Of course, yeah. I think that's a really important one. I think uh, I think we need to also uh, recognise the European Union's competences in the area of health, mm. uh, in particular public health, because this is not going to be the last pandemic. We're going to have to 
deal with this uh, uh, repeatedly, I think, and that we've we've clearly seen that the uh, union works better than individual member states and smaller member states in particular. So we were distributed, you know, we benefited from the Uni- European Union scale in, in, a, in a huge way. I think in the area of trade, we need to do more. We, we've fallen back very much on the, uh, you know, free trade agreements that we had in the past. So the New Zealand free trade agreement is coming up for ratification in the next few weeks. Um, we have to, I think, expand that uh, those free trade agreements as well. So I think that's where there's two areas I think we're falling behind uh, sure. in particular. Barry, we have a, a producer out there who's frantically waving at me through the window because we could talk forever. We could keep this going forever. Right. We have a little question at the end. Yes. You might be familiar with that. Book or a movie that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Anything at all. I mean, you can go beyond the world of politics and law if you want. Yeah, well, want. I mean, I read Oppenheimer over the summer, you know, the famous book about the, that ended up in a movie and it was really, really brilliant. It's the only kind of book you can only read in the summer holiday. But I'm currently reading uh, Great Hatred, Little Room, which is Jonathan Powell's account of the Good Friday Agreement oh, wow, yeah. and all of that period. He was Blair's chief of staff. Very, very highly recommended. It's not written in a very, very great way, but it's um, it really helps you to, because uh, I do a lot of work on Brexit on sort of Northern Ireland and try to, Add the Brussels voice into the Belfast issues that are there, and it's uh, it's but but it's also relevant now. You know, people are talking about the Good Friday Agreement, the context of what's happening in Gaza and is in Israel. Jonathan so, Powell, wow, whose brother Powell. was Charles Pole. Oh, yeah, he was he was, he was chief advisor Fun to Margaret fact. Thatcher. Fun to Margaret fact. Thatcher, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but he called himself Pole as opposed. So to yeah, Powell. no, anyway. I recommend that. That's a great book. A yeah, great, book. great, wonderful. And how, how about how about a movie? Yeah, Die Hard, Mad Max, any of those? I went no? to see Oppenheimer, of course, you know, and we were walking out of Oppenheimer, there's a guy behind me who says, uh, a much preferred Barbie, he said. <laughs> Barry, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks very much for joining us in the Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can I say a huge thank you to our guest, MEP Barry Andrews, who came in and just talked so freely about his experiences out in Brussels, his background, his interesting family history. I, I really enjoyed that interview, Mark. Absolutely. I understand he was on his brother's podcast as well, yes, which we would have been a rather different yeah. Uh, yeah, experience, yeah. which I think is called And That's Why We're Not Together. It's a, it's a podcast that his brother does with his former wife. We messed up oh. big time and not asking him about that. But anyway, we might get him in again. Absolutely. You never know. Yeah. You never know. Okay, so that's all from this edition of the show. Can I thank our producer, Conal O'Moroin, for all his assistance in putting this show together and to the great Lee Brennan for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. That's all for this show and we shall see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.